We would be honored if you would join us. Hello and welcome everybody back to Dungeon Crawlers Radio, where I am not Daniel, but we are preparing to take a journey that is light years beyond our imagination. This episode, if everything goes well and if everything goes right, this episode will drop on Friday, July 29th, 2022. And do you know what day that is? Tell me, Krebs, what day is that? It marks the 39th anniversary of the Invasion of the Beast. <gasps> yes. Now, with me, of course, I'm not taking this journey alone. With me is my awesome and amazing brother and co-host, Matai-san. Hello, everybody. I am the other Krebs. Call me Matai. And in addition to Krebs and the other Krebs, we have yet another. So allow me to introduce you to our sister, Sarah. Hello, hello, everybody out there in the world. I am so excited to be able to discuss this epic subject. Now, I know what you're thinking. Oh, no, there's three of them. But don't worry. You've secretly been outnumbered the whole time. No, uh, uh, our friend Daniel, you might notice that Daniel is not here doing the intro and doing his normal thing. That is because he had a personal uh, issue that he had to take care of. Not a big deal, but he is not able to be here with us tonight. But there are the three of us. And there's something very special about getting the three of us together, particularly on this topic. First, just, just really quick, just really quick. Matthew, Sarah... Do you guys have any memories of the first time that we saw Kroll together? Yes. 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 I was, I was even going to remark that the three of us saw it together yes. at the first time in the theaters. So uh, what, do you, what do you remember about that, Sister Sarah? I remember that we uh, went all the way over into Carmel to go to the theater there. We saw it as California, a by the double way. feature with Strange Brew, <laughs> with Strange because everybody Brew. loves the McKenzie brothers. I think I <laughs> slept through part of Strange Brew because we were really just waiting for Kroll to start. Yeah, I, that's so funny that you mentioned that. Now, I, I don't want to cover this for too long because uh, listeners out there who have been following the show for some time might recall that one year ago, we had a Kroll episode, and I talked about this very experience, but I also fell asleep partway through Strange Brew, and I woke up toward the end when they have the hockey fight and the goalie was doing Darth Vader allusions and things like that. But yeah, we stayed awake the entire time for Kroll, though it was the second and later film. Matthew, do you have anything to add to that experience? I just remember it was kind of a, a bit of a entertainment whiplash uh, when Kroll came on, because the the soundtrack, the production quality of, of Strange Brew was of a very different uh, ilk than, than Kroll. But you get that James Horner theme uh, that comes up with Kroll. And, um, you know, and on, I was I it, it really woke me up and it took me a long time to 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 um, to rec- to realize why. And it was because I think the year a few years previous uh, Star Trek, the motion picture. Uh, uh, no, Wrath of Khan. Wrath of Khan was prior. Yes, this... Oh, okay. It was one of the Star Trek movies. Uh, but I just remember, I had good memories about, about seeing that. Uh, so this, this, this music came up and I couldn't replace what it was. Uh, it, and people, it's not a copy. It's a variation on a theme, which I think the composers do quite often. And uh, in any case, for both those movies, this was an epic soundtrack. It was mm-hmm. awesome. Yeah, James Horner did the music for both Wrath of Khan and for Kroll. James Horner was coming up in the composer world at that time. He was kind of the golden boy, and he was getting tapped for a number of uh, a number of films, some more high profile than others. But what what, what was uh, what was cool was that like uh, he he did Wrath of Khan first. He learned quite a bit from that experience, and then he did Kroll. It is the greatest complete body of work that I think he ever made. All right then. As as a, as a whole, as a whole, taken in its totality, is better than any other single soundtrack he ever did, in my opinion. Uh, but that's just an opinion. Let's talk for a moment here. Let's let's catch the 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 listeners up a little bit. For those of you who have yet to see Kroll, despite the ad nauseum number of times that I have mentioned how amazing this film is, 
Let's give you just a quick synopsis. An alien invader known as the Beast, with his army called the Slayers, invades another world, the world of Kroll, by flying a spaceship in the shape of a mountainous fortress and landing on this planet. They invade the planet, they ransack it, and in order to fight back two previously warring kingdoms, the kingdoms of Eirig and the kingdoms, uh, the kingdom of Torold, have agreed to an alliance by marrying the prince of Torold to the princess of Eirig, Colwyn and Lyssa, respectively. But these are special people, more special than one is led to believe in the beginning. During the wedding ceremony, the uh, what is known as the White Castle, <laughs> not the burger place, the White Castle of Eirig, is invaded by the Slayers. During a fierce battle, many people are killed, including both kings, and Colwyn is severely injured and rendered unconscious as Lyssa is absconded with by the enemy. She is taken to the Black Fortress where she is held prisoner, and the Beast makes daily attempts to get her to choose him as her king. Meanwhile, a great seer, Yanir, comes down from the Granite Mountains, picks Colwyn up, and agrees to join him on a journey to find a mythical weapon, and to destroy the beast. Along the way, they meet a bumbling wizard, Ergo. They make friends with a group of bandits who become their, their tiny but ferocious army. They also befriend a wandering, solitary cyclops. And with the help of multiple seers, they are eventually able to find the Black Fortress, a fortress that is constantly on the move. They break into the fortress, and they fight the slayers, Colwyn frees Lyssa, encounters the beast, loses this mythical weapon known as the glaive. But ultimately, together, find the, they find the power. Lyssa and Colwyn find the power to destroy and defeat the beast and free Kroll of its invaders. How was that for a synopsis? All right. Short and sweet. Good. There you go. All right. So now everybody should be well acquainted with what happens in the movie Kroll. Uh, and... Uh, it's 39 years. We don't even need, we're not even going to throw a spoiler alert up here. Yeah, we probably should have, but you're right. It's been 39 years. 39 got, years. If you haven't got tears seen it by you. now, you shame on you. 39 years. You had one job. If you haven't done it yet. <laughs> and yes, I, like absolutely. So uh, from this point on, if you don't want spoilers, put this on pause. Do what you should have done within at least the last 20 years and go watch Kroll. Come back and enjoy and engage in the conversation. Okay, so here we are, 39 years removed from 1983. Uh, we were, let's see, in 1983, none of us were double digits. All of us were less than 10 years old. Oh, wait, was Matthew 10? <laughs> I was exactly 10. Oh, wait yeah, you had, just, you had just had your birthday, like, yeah. a few weeks prior. Okay, I take that back. You were freshly ten, fresh, freshly minted, double digit kid, but but Sarah and I were single digits when we saw this movie. Okay, so it's been thirty nine years, and what's interesting is that over that time, I know for me personally, my love for this film has only increased. It has always been something that I have found not just not just nostalgic, but something fantastic in the literal sense, and something that would like stoked my imagination and my curiosity. Uh, Sarah, what about you? Have, have your feelings for Kroll at all wavered, changed, evolved over the last 39 years? You know, as a child, when we first went to go see the movie, I, I, I was fascinated by it. But having a child's view, I didn't understand all the deeper context of it. Throughout the years, as I've continued to watch it over and over, I... I understand more and more and more. And so it's almost like seeing a new movie every single time I was watching it. And it's like peeling away the layers. And as we've had our own discussions together about it, um, the depth that we go into the context of it and the the minutia that we get into has given me an even greater appreciation. I already loved this movie and I love it more every single time that I discuss it. Matthew, what about you? Have your feelings evolved or changed over the years? You know, when I saw the movie, uh, as I said, the music really made an impression on me uh, the first time. Got me in the mood, which is what a good soundtrack is supposed to do. I loved the weapon, the glaive. The rest of the story was entertaining. It was great. I, but the part that I really loved was the glaive. This <laughs> magical throwing star that comes back to your hand. It was just awesome. But after that, it was going out into the world and seeing it pop up in video games. 
when I saw the Atari game on sale at a store, I begged and whined and threw a fit till my grandmother bought it. I still argue that Atari games today are the hardest games in the world. They are. They totally are. <laughs> and then, but then that, there was also one of those uh, stand-up arcade cabinet games, mm-hmm. um, and you would you had you could throw out like three or five glaives at a time. Uh, you had to dodge boulders. You were killing slayers, uh, and I just loved uh, playing that game. So the more I got into some of the games, and then there was a board game, and there were card games, and it was being able to play brought me more into the world so that when I would then go see the movie again, I would remember playing the games. It just, it it was this uh, feedback cycle that just really entertained my childhood and then brings those nostalgic memories back to me, even as an adult. You know, I, this film, like we, all three of us love it. And the question becomes, okay, acknowledging that it is a 39 year old film and acknowledging that technology and filmmaking has come a vast, large, long way away from that point of origin. Why do we still love it so much today? What is it about the film from 1983 that makes us love it in 2022? I think that it has a lot to do with the fact that we were so fascinated with it as children and the fact that all three of us have a particular sentimental nostalgia for the 80s. We all love that era. So things that come from that era naturally have a special place in our heart. But because we had that really neat experience of going and seeing it in the theater all together when we were younger, I think that that is what makes it special to us and why we hold on to it so dearly. Um, it has a lot to do with the sentiment, the memories that we have. But the fact is, it's just a very, very good movie. <laughs> and so um, as adults, now that we are looking back and appreciating it from a different set of eyes, we are able to go and, like I was saying before, peel away the layers and start looking into it more. And I think that that endears it to us even more. And so it it remains freshly loved in our hearts is the best way for me to to explain that is that it remain it, our love for it is constantly being renewed because we're always discussing it and and thinking of new ideas and new. Uh, details and and things and so it is constantly being brought freshly to us for me there's definitely a a strong nostalgia factor Uh, when I watch it now I remember being a kid and seeing it Um, and like Sarah said there were a lot of um, more subtle story points that I completely missed as a kid Um, but now as an adult I look back and it's like oh I didn't notice that or or thinking about you know titch is is rather young um how how did these two kingdoms communicate with each other if they were so far away uh why you know just all these questions come up uh that make me want to know more about the backstory and that was one of the things about crawl is that when this all came together there was a very rich world and the movie just seems to barely touch on it. And I guess that feeling of, of leaving me wanting more has kept bringing me back to the movie. I think that's an excellent point. One of the one of the smartest things they did in the early like pre-production and inception phases of this film, one of the greatest things they ever did was they they migrated away. Originally this film, and we mentioned this last year in the in the previous episode, but uh this was originally called the dragons of kroll and in truth this uk studio was trying to cash in on the current zeitgeist of uh sort of sword and sorcery and and dragons and such but it just wasn't coming together the writing was extremely tropish it, it, there was a lot of hokum and corniness to it but then aliens succeeded extremely well and sci-fi was on the rise and we'd had Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back before that. And Star Trek. Uh, yes, and Star Trek, right? And one of the writers said, wait, what if the kingdom isn't called Kroll? What if it's not medieval Earth? What if it's a planet called Kroll? It's another world entirely. And that changed the tone of everything. And it was the reason I think that is so smart is because if this were just medieval Earth, then it's very easy to punch holes in this sci-fi fantasy alternate history and say like, well, that's not how messages were communicated. They didn't have that technology. Why are the, why are those knights dressed in plastic? Why, you know, what, there are so many questions that 
can sort of be uh, MacGuffined. I, I, that's not the correct, that's not the correct term. Uh, it can be explained away by saying, "Well, this is an alien planet with alien experience, with alien materials, with alien knowledge." You know, like even though it's a bunch of humanoids and human-looking people, not everything is Earth-based. I think that's actually what makes this film great. Because I, I, here's here's the question that has been going through my head: We love it in large part because of the nostalgia. But what about the person who's 20-something now, who's 17, who's 40 and never seen it? For them, there is zero nostalgia. What's going to make them like this film, in your opinion, Matai? Even young people today, some of them have an appreciation for things that are classic or vintage. And you definitely have to have that sense of appreciation to enjoy this movie because the effects are from the early 1980s. (laughs) This is not a Marvel blockbuster. And if you're looking for an effects extravaganza, it's going to interfere with your ability to enjoy the movie. If, however, you appreciate, um, you know, the the Harryhausen, not that there is stop motion in this, but that kind of, yeah, I could tell that's a special effect. It doesn't look real, but I'm accepting it as a a means of furthering the story. If you you can have that kind of... that particular flavor of suspension of disbelief, then you can go into this and this is a fantasy story. This is a hero's, a variation on hero's journey. Um, And there's hundreds, literally hundreds of movies out there that do that, but Kroll does it differently. And so if you've got someone that has an appreciation of uh, vintage uh, fantasy movies and wants to see something that's different, a different take on an old trope. That's what's going to get them to crawl. That and the glaive rocks. <laughs> Sarah, what about you? For people who don't have nostalgia around this film, what's going to make them love it today? Okay, first and foremost, I have to say, where are their parents? Why? Shame on their parents. Why did they not raise their children with this movie? Okay. So, first of all, the the fault is on the parents. Secondly, I think that getting them to want to watch this is... I, I was very much on board with what Matt said. It's the same thing. If you want to be... If you're someone who appreciates vintage, classic cult classic type of things, then this is another thing you need to add to your repertoire. Uh, You need to be able to know this one in order to understand particular quotes. You know, everybody quotes from like Caddyshack. Everybody quotes Mm -hmm. from Stripes, you know, stuff like this. Things that have become such a major part of pop culture that people quote from it, even when they haven't seen the movie themselves, or it is far beyond, you know, way before their generation, but they still quote from it. Everybody says, Rosebud, you know, because everybody is doing the Citizen Kane thing. How many of these people have actually seen Citizen Kane? I ask you. But when it comes to Kroll, if you want to be able to understand a lot of this pop culture, then this is a great place to find a lot of that. And if you're trying to dig deeper into vintage sci-fi, this is a good place to start. And it really kind of sets the stage for a lot of other uh, movies that followed it and a lot of other movies that are in this same vein. And I, I think that people are doing themselves a disservice by not seeing this or simply taking the word of a critic of it who will immediately poo-poo it rather than going and trying to see it with their own eyes, you know, and not, not immediately go into it biased. Yeah, I agree with that. I I think that there are certain disservices to this film that have been done in recent history. One, if you go on YouTube and you and you look up anyone who has reviewed Kroll or, or talks about it, the vast majority of the content out there are people who are ironically traipsing through 80s film history looking primarily for cheese and hokum instead of acknowledging that the craft was different then storytelling was different film you know cinematic technology was different all those things and appreciating the story that's being told instead of doing that they are nitpicking the mechanisms by which they tell the story uh now there are some valid story concerns there are some valid um criticisms of how the story is told as a story 
But that said, most people watch this because they're looking for cheese and hokum. And if that's what you're looking for, you'll find it. You'll see it. You'll hear it. And that's what you will experience. But you won't experience the world that's actually being built underneath. So I think that's one disservice. The second disservice is that uh, people make unfair comparisons. I I guess unfair is not necessarily true. This gets compared to Return of the Jedi all the time because Return of the Jedi came out May of the same year. So it comes out May of 1983. And then in July, just two months later, in fact, almost to the day, Kroll drops. And even the poster um, has emblems and symbols that are obviously kind of trying to entice people based on the popularity of Star Wars. And so the number one thing that I hear when I bring up Kroll from people who want to be critical of it is they go, oh, the Return of the Jedi ripoff or the Star Wars wannabe. And I think that that does it a terrible disservice too, because even though you can draw parallels, I can also draw parallels between Star Wars and Lysistrata, or I can draw parallels between, you know, the classic Greek uh, drama formula or the hero's um, journey and Star Wars. Star Wars is incredibly tropish, but man, it's beloved and it's amazing. Kroll has that has that potential as well. And I think that that needs to be, I think the mindset that people go in with is important. So I'd say that to tell people like what to avoid. And I would tell you that what makes, what would make someone today love this film is being able to experience the world and the mythos of this world and then start to get curious about it. Uh, Start asking questions and start challenging. Is it really as tropish as you think it is? You know what your comment about star Wars just now, I think is actually really, really applies to crawl star Wars. If you want to go look for hokum and cheese, uh, the original star Wars (laughs) for the special edition and all that stuff um, really was, tropish it was very predictable um if you think about it with 21st century eyes however it was still a classic it turned the course of film history yes. from that point on um because they looked at it and and i don't think that anybody was saying this was completely original um, but they loved the way the story was retold in this fashion. And I think that if you look at Kroll with the same eyes, this is just another fantasy thing that it hits a lot of the same tropish story beats, but it does it in a new and unique way. And so if you approach Kroll in the same um, fashion of, I want to see what makes this one different, Kroll actually opens up to be a pretty good movie. Along with that, uh, when we speak of Star Wars being this, you know, it just it was a history making movie. Yeah. I mean, uh, American pop culture is kind of measured <laughs> kind of from this this point of the status of Star Wars and where we're at with Star Wars these days. You know, it has it still has a fan base and it has gone on for a few generations. Now, the reason that Star Wars did so well was because it was just plain enjoyable it was it was fun to watch you know it was a good movie and so that is why people continue to watch it and then when they had kids they wanted their kids to grow up watching it and then their grandkids grew up watching it it was just a fun movie to watch now if you look at it from a tropish perspective and cheese and hokum yeah it's absolutely there so why did this sci-fi movie do so well after all it came down to the fact that it was just a darn fun movie to watch and then it was a series of movies and all of them were fun it was a fun series and this is the same thing with Kroll yes there is there is tropism there but the the main thing is that it is just a fun movie to watch you don't have to pick it apart even though we're welcome we're happy to do it for you but (laughs) it is just darn fun to watch and if you can just appreciate it for being a fun movie you'll get a lot of enjoyment out of it just from that alone well, and I, and I also think that people who are keyed into UK 
um, pop culture and subculture, um, there is a, a fair amount of like UK dry humor sprinkled throughout that as Americans in the 80s probably wasn't as well known. But with with our always connected international world now, I think a lot of that humor translates in a modern setting uh, for those who are into how films are made and the cinematic craft. Uh, the vast majority of this film is practical is practical effects on a set, and there are some composite shots. In fact, I should say that all the effects are practical, with the exception of the VFX for rotoscoping, the um, Slayer blasts and lightning effects. Like energy effects are obviously rotoscoped and, and different. Everything else is practical and or composite. So this was a very handcrafted film. And for those who are into art direction, I will tell you right now, one of my favorite things about Kroll is the costume design, the world design, the art design in general of this film is is simultaneously familiar and alien. There are themes and consistencies in the design that are that fit the world of Kroll and could almost fit in the history of this world, but not quite like you can tell and you can discern and you can pull these things apart i love the art direction of this film so we love the movie and we're trying to explain why people today would love the movie but at the time kroll was actually a box office failure it cost uh it cost them at the time uh there are varying numbers on this by the way for the budget but it cost them about somewhere in the neighborhood of 37 million dollars to make which doesn't sound like that much except it only made worldwide. It only made just under seventeen mil. It was like sixteen nine one three or something like that. Uh, when you translate that into today's dollars, it means that the movie cost about a hundred and ten million dollars to make, and only made fifty at the box office across the world. So, ouch. Yeah. So it was. They made less than half their money back. It just absolutely tanked in the box office. And I think that there are multiple reasons for that. Yeah, it was in a double feature with Strange Brew. <laughs> uh, so looking back on this film, what are some th- what are some shortcomings of this film? As, as a finished piece, be it 1983 or 2022, what are some of the shortcomings of this film that would detract from someone appreciating this or, or giving it high marks? You know, one of the things I mentioned earlier is that this world has so much lore, so much backstory behind it. And they one of the mistakes I think they made, <clears throat> and this is common for a lot of movies of that time period, is they would introduce a power, they would introduce a character without any setup. It's just, bam, there's an Emerald Seer. Bam, there's this prophecy, there's this beast, people, the glaive was was so well known that it became a religious symbol that had faded to legend, uh, and a lot of people didn't believe it was real. Um, and, you know, well, we, need to, we, we need to have a method to travel real quickly from one place to another. Well, there were fire mares in this world, did you know that? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you've got cyclopes, you've got shape-shifting hill people, uh, the widow of the web, and there's a law of the web by which she was trapped there. And everybody seems to know who she is and that she can go there to get knowledge, but you'll probably die for it. But yet enough people went there that they know that it became a legend. And so where did all this come from? It's kind of, uh, I think this is because it's not unique to crawl, but it's kind of cheating. You mm-hmm. haven't, you haven't done enough setup, so there's no payoff for the reveal. And in in that sense, it kind of cheapens the storytelling. Whereas just doing a little bit of of setup, of introduction, of having some consistency between the lore or connections, connections between everything, would have made um, the movie even better. And when I think of connections, I think of the series Lost. Mm. Um, you you look at this, and a lot of these things, a lot of these characters, and a lot of the things that happen to them seem uh, unrelated. But as you see their flashbacks, you realize that all these characters have interacted uh, one or two connections removed from other main characters in the series. Their whole pasts are all interrelated. And as you see those connections, you get more excited and more interested and more importantly, more invested in the series. The same thing could have happened with Kroll. They, the one part they did start to pursue this was with the relationship between Yanir, the ancient one and the widow of the web. 
if they had done something like that for all the other things, how does Yennir know about the hill people? How did uh, Ergo get his shape-shifting powers? Are there other seers besides the Emerald One? You know, if you start connecting all of these things, what if there was a connection between Colwyn's father and Torquil and his, his bandits that had been locked up? You know, if we see more of that, I think that would have been a great way to get people to invest emotionally in the movie. So I I agree with that, too. Like, um, there's so much, like... I think one of the shortcomings of this film is that it was the tippiest tip of the iceberg that we, and, and no one recognized it, except possibly the writers at the time. I'm not sure. In truth, if we look at it, chances are it was a, it was a movie studio overseas that was trying to make a quick buck. But I think that's how it started. I don't think that's how it ended. I think it ended as this lush, rich fantasy world that, like you said, they kept touching on these little openings, these little hooks. Even our previous uh, host, Alton, uh, we miss you, Alton, buddy. Uh, even he talked about there's so much knowledge in the world that's just not exposed to the audience. There's so much mythos and there's so much explanation that never happens because there just isn't enough time. They they showed us so much of this world piecemeal in just these little tiny nuggets and it felt like they were trying to tell the trunk line story, what they really did was they showed us all of these branches and all of these forks and never explored them. And I think that's where a lot of people get hung up. It's Deus ex everything, right? But, but the truth is one of the things that we've come to love about it as siblings is that each one of those hooks is a beautiful mystery to be explored, which we'll talk about shortly. I agree with you. They kind of just magically do a lot of things in this world with absolutely no justification except for that magical explanation. It's an alien world and it's a magical world and it has its own rules. So get with the program, right? I think that some of the shortcomings of the movie actually don't have to do with the writing of the movie itself. It has to do with a lot of things that were surrounding the release of the movie. Mm, it yes. seemed like, uh, let, let's talk about the fact that it ha it was released as a double feature. So automatically they weren't sure that it was strong enough to stand on its own. And I also have to tell you, now this is simply based on the fact that I don't remember, but I was going to say I don't remember seeing advertising for this i don't remember seeing previews for this movie i don't remember seeing commercials or movie posters for oh coming soon or anything like that i don't think that this got the amount of advertising it deserved to have i think it could have been I, we already view it as this epic sci-fi movie and i don't think the rest of the public got that same message because I don't remember it getting the amount of advertising and marketing it should have received if they wanted to be able to make their money back and some, and then some. I'm so glad that you brought that up because I agree with the statement. It did not get the advertising it deserved. Here's what actually happened. And you can go on YouTube right now and you can see this for yourself. The trailer for Kroll is an abomination. It is one of the worst trailers i've ever seen for all of the accusations of being cheese and hokum i think the trailer actually feeds that narrative and it was a trailer that they tried i it it absolutely has that feeling of we're behind schedule we're over budget we need to get this out into the public forums so that we can make some of this money back and so someone put down their crayons and stopped eating the paint and <laughs> went and made a trailer for them and was like here you go. And they hung it up on the fridge of the public space. And it was just horrible. It was absolutely terrible. I actually encourage all of you to go see the trailer for this thing. But I would prefer that you see it after you see the film and after you've had some valuable conversations about the film. Because the trailer does the film and horrible injustice. That happens a lot of times when the studio doesn't know how to handle the movie that they've got. Uh, John uh, Carter of Mars was like that. Oh, yeah. Princess Bride was in danger of that. And one of the reasons Princess Bride wasn't made for so long is that it is so many. It doesn't fit one genre. That's right. And they didn't. And they they it was always called the impossible movie. You can't make this movie um, because they don't know because the movie studios are so single-minded it has to be an action or a romance or, or a, a comedy kids movie 
or a comedy. Um, it, they they don't know how to market things that don't fit neatly into a pigeonhole. And for whatever reason, we look back on it now. I think we can put Kroll in a comfortable fantasy sci-fi category. But at the time back then, they couldn't make it fit. They couldn't get their minds around what to do with it. I'm glad you called it that. Did you know that Kroll coined the term sci-fi fantasy? I did not know that. It was the first film to label itself sci-fi fantasy. Now, I I would imagine that there are other films that now hold that same badge. I don't know which, I, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head who proudly proclaims that, but it is my understanding that Kroll was the first one ever to call itself a sci-fi fantasy. As well it should. Uh, let's move forward just a little bit here. So we, we, we touched on the idea of like there are hooks in this story that are unexplored. And as we have as siblings sat around and talked about this movie, I don't know about you guys, but for like the first 30 years of knowing this movie, 25, 30 years, it was always it was the nostalgia factor, right? It was it was a fun sci-fi movie. The glaive is freaking awesome. The slayers have really cool space muskets, all that stuff. Right. But in the last decade and I, I am going to throw a, a shout out to my friend Connor Anderson, who really helped me to start thinking about this in a different light. Hey, Sir Connor. It ends up that this, uh, the thing that I love about this film are all the questions that you could legitimately ask and explore. Not in the way of like uh, the way that so many people do now, where there's like, oh, there's a plot hole here. Because if indeed Captain America could move Mjolnir, it's not like that at all, right? Like it's, no, no, this is like, hey, they briefly mentioned this. They opened this door a crack and then they just left it there. Imagine going through a mansion of great imagination where all the doors are just a little cracked open and you can go into any one of them. It's not that the house is incomplete. It's that you haven't explored that room yet. This film, for me, is like that. This is why I get so excited about Kroll. And as we've talked as siblings, all of a sudden, we've had all sorts of ideas and questions and thoughts. What are some mysteries of Kroll that you would like to see explored? For me, the most interesting character in the entire movie is not Colwyn or Lissa, although I, they're great hero they're and great. heroine. They're great. Um, there are some fantastic things that they do, but the most interesting character is Rel the Cyclops. Amen. There is so much more to be known about him, and he's the quiet guy, um, but that just bespeaks his his inner turmoil, his pain, and what mo- he, he's always this very heroic honorable character showing up at just the right moment and not seeking credit. He does the right thing because it's the right thing to do and he doesn't count the cost. That is what makes somebody heroic. And Yanir gives us a little bit of backstory of his entire race, but it's not like you said. He touches on it. But there's so much more about the entire Cyclops people. And what about Rel's story in particular? What is his personal grief with the Beast? And, you know, what he makes a tragic, not tragic, but a life-changing, death-changing decision. <laughs> That's, um, yes, death-changing. That's a good Death-changing decision uh, in the movie. Um, and, you know, what drove him to that? What, what happened in that 24 hours uh, while everybody else was racing to the Black Fortress um, that made him change his mind? Um, how did he get to be? There's just so much to explore with Rel. I mean, he could have a whole movie by himself. I think that one of the great mysteries is Yanir. It, it, it kind of goes back to what Matt said, where you're just kind of expected to know, you know, without any previous backstory, no explanation. You just, this is it, and you have to accept it. And we're moving on with the movie, so keep up, you know, kind of thing. We know that he's referred to as the Ancient One. Well, how ancient? And why? How did he get to have that that name, the Ancient One? And I want to know more about him. How did he know that the glaive was in the mountains? Why did he know the glaive was in the mountains, in this lava stream? When was the last time that the glaive was used? Because it must have been sometime during Yanir's lifetime so that he would have known something about it and why it landed there so he would have known 
where to find it. That is one of the things I want to know is more exploration of Yanir's character and his backstory because there's a great deal of mystery that surrounds Yanir that will explain a whole lot more about what's going on in the story. The other big mystery that I am trying to understand is every time that a slayer is killed, <laughs> the worm that comes out of their head goes into the <laughs> ground. And I've always wondered, is that worm regenerating and becoming a new slayer again and popping up somewhere else? Is that why their army seems so endless is it just going into the ground and regenerating is that why nobody can ever seem to get on top of the slayer army is it because it just keeps regenerating that is a big mystery what's happening with this worm that comes out of their head and why are all why do all slayers have only one hit point i know yes uh, i i can answer that it's because they are D D fourth edition ads it was the atari generation <laughs> it was the atari generation um I, I think they're all I think secretly all the headworms are Cobra pilots from the cartoon G.I. Joe, because the <laughs> moment their vessel gets hit, they just hit eject and just go, Pew! I'm OK, you know. So, yeah, th- those are great mysteries of Kroll because uh, and and I, I realize audience out there that like we have the advantage of having had these conversations over the years and, and Connor and I have had these sort of same conversations, uh, at least around some of this. There is. There's ugh, there's so much to explore. Uh, the Emerald Seer has an apprentice, Titch. Like like they never cover the tradition behind that. What the expectation of Titch is? Is he simply a servant, or is he uh, the the future Emerald Seer? Is is he meant to take his place? Is what's the system here? If there's an Emerald Seer, are there other mineral based seers? Uh, we know that there are other seers in the world. The Widow of the Web is a seer. Yanir is a seer. What other seers are there in the world, and what are the rules? Uh, Colwyn and Lissa have some preternatural relationship with fire which is important in terms of how do you retrieve the glaive the glaive was kept safe in a lava flow from people who are not impervious to fire but there seems to be some relationship between colwyn lissa and fire in some way right that allows him to reach into schmucker's raspberry preserves and pull up the glaive also to reach into water and pull forth flame uh, that's what Lissa does. Lissa reaches into water and pulls forth flame. And you're absolutely right. The, the mystery of, I mentioned earlier, all the knights of both Eirig and Turold have very similar armor, but it's like plastoid armor, like stormtrooper armor. And we could chalk that up in the real world to the influence of Star Wars on sci-fi and fantasy. But in terms of the world and its story, how did they come across that material? What is that material? How impervious is it to damage? And yeah, and why isn't it impervious to any damage at all? Yeah, but well, no, because because the Slayers come from another world with energy weapons in a world where there aren't energy weapons. So I think the armor might actually be highly effective against blades and maybe even arrows, but not to like frickin' laser muskets. Mm, good point, good point. Also, fun fact, I don't know if you guys noticed this or not, uh, Connor and I sat down one time and we watched the movie. We took a we took a barely two-hour movie and we made it like a five-hour event by <laughs> hitting pause and then we would go through certain scenes frame for frame. When the, when the slayers go to shoot, there is a physical blade there. There's a fleshette yep. that is there yep. that shoots out. And it's, in, it's, it's coated in energy as it flies. So when you're getting hit, you're getting hit by an energy weapon and by a ballistic or like a physical, a kinetic weapon. That's what I'm trying to say, kinetic a kinetic weapon. weapon. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's a fascinating thing. And I'm kind of curious. They only get one shot. I'm kind of curious. How organic is that? Where does the technology, how does that technology work, right? So there are so many mysteries that we could dive down. You guys have hit a couple of like the big ones. I think the Rel story is probably one of the deepest unexplored caverns in this world, but it's not the only deep one, right? And, you know, as time has gone on, we've we've got the novel by Alan Dean Foster. The novel was based on a, the, the final script before they went to go shoot it. And of course, while you're shooting, you make script adjustments anyway, but this was the, the pre-production final script. He wrote this book that encapsulates everything that happens there, and it captures information that just wasn't told in the movie for time in the soundtrack they they made a limited run uh, special edition soundtrack 
a handful of years ago. They only made 2,000 copies, and it was really easy for me to get one. That should tell you something. But, uh, <laughs> but the liner notes in that soundtrack also contains behind the mythos storytelling that is not in the book and not in the movie. And then as kids, Matthew, Matthew, do you remember what souvenir we got when we were super young? Hint, it's Kroll, but it's by Marvel. Oh, yeah. Uh, they had a, a limited uh, series. Yeah. A Marvel limited series that was a, a, an adaptation of the movie. And uh, I think I ended up with, with at one point, I had two co- two complete copies of the miniseries. Yes. Uh, it's it, it's a two comic book series. I have one of your pairs of comics, and you allowed me to give the second pair to Connor Anderson as a gift, which was very, very That's cool. Right. So between the comic books, the novel... The liner notes, there's certain information that comes out of these materials that is not present in the film. Can you guys think, having read the book yourself and having been exposed to some of this, can you think of any enhancements in the book that's not present in the film that would enhance the experience for someone who's watching the movie for the first time? The very first thing that comes to my mind is uh, the scene with Yanir and old Lissa, the widow of the web, when they're inside her web cocoon and he went there to go see her and use her seer abilities to be able to get information about where the black fortress would land so they could get there and try and continue their quest. And in it, in the film, at one point, the widow of the web, who is very old and decrepit, Mm -hmm. um, changes to become young again, the way she looked when she was a young woman. And she was truly beautiful because she's Francesca Annis. That's exactly what I was going to say, because she's Francesca Annis, right? You can't not be beautiful. And uh, in the film, it comes off as she uses her powers in order to make herself young the way that Yanir remembered her when they were a young couple. And in reading the book... Uh, it actually gives more detail, and it was not Lissa's power. In fact, she makes it quite clear. It's been so long, I don't even remember what I looked like when I was younger anymore. But Yanir says, I can't forget. I remember what you look like. And so actually, Yanir uses his power, his memory of her, and his visionary ability to make her the vision of the only Lissa that he remembers. But it's Yanir and his love for her in his heart. It it wells up again once he sees her. And the only way he can see her is with eyes that see her in the past, the way he saw her the last time, which was when she was a very young woman and he left her to go on all of his quests and his quest for knowledge. And he had ambition and stuff like that, which made him leave her. And that was what I discovered in the book was that it wasn't Lissa changing herself for him. It was him changing her. She couldn't remember what she looked like. And so even she was surprised. It's like, oh my goodness, I did used to look like this. So that was a really interesting part of the book. Matai, what additional, you know, external to the film material or or factoid would you share to help people enjoy the film today? You know, it came from the books and the liner notes, I believe. It makes it clear that the glaive is extraterrestrial. Now, the glaive mm-hmm. is not native to Kroll. It came to the planet from someplace else. Um, and it came with a prophecy. Uh, the prophecy is mentioned by Yanir and it's uh, then used in the um, uh, denouement of the movie as they, as they end it. Um, Great word. But they... But other than that, the importance of the prophecy is not brought out very well in the movie, whereas in the book, it is very much emphasized. It is the first thing that gets established. Uh, Also, it mentions that there there was writing on the glaive, and the the assumption then, the implication, excuse me, is that the prophecy was written on the glaive when when it arrived. Um, And so... The importance of the prophecy is not readily apparent in the movie, but the reason the beast doesn't just force Lissa or doesn't just kill her is because of the prophecy. She has to choose her king. 
So he's trying to coerce her into making a choice, but she has to do it of her own free will. And that's something that comes out much more clearly in the book uh, than it does in the movie. Yeah. And I think that might be one of the uh, sources of some of the criticism of the movie is that we got a damsel in distress and the bad guy isn't mm-hmm. doing it. What's this bad guy thinking? Why is he treating her with kid gloves? And if you, but when you read the context in the book, you understand he has no other choice. It, that's actually one of my favorite gems of this film. And we talked about this last year also, where uh, one of the common criticisms is it's a damsel in distress and the man has to sweep, swoop in and save her. In fact, a team of men have to swoop in and save her, right? The That criticism falls apart when you realize that Lissa is the most powerful person in the entire world of Kroll. She is the most powerful. And as you understand that relationship to the prophecy, she can't be forced to do something. She can't just be married to the beast and then magically he benefits from the prophecy. He has to get her to choose of her own free will. And he has some very clever mechanisms, tropish mechanisms, but used cleverly in both the film and the book to get her to choose. And there is a point in both the film and the book where she's like begging, pleading inside of herself for Colwyn to hurry and save her because um, she's weakening. She's getting to the point where she can't help but do what the beast wants. I think that the another thing that makes the criticism fall apart is that it is not a damsel in distress story. It is a planet in distress, and she is the one with the power to save the whole planet. She's not in distress. She's trying to save the planet that is in distress and has been for generations untold. And it has become stuff of legends and myth in their world because it's been going on for so long. And finally, this person with some supernatural ability actually has the power to save everyone. So it's the damsel in power, not in distress. That is exactly true. And the thing that I like in terms of like external material, uh, Matthew kind of, I mean, he hit right on it in the very first page of like the title page of the book, you open up the cover. The very first thing it says is tumbling through galactic space. The glaive bears this message. And then it goes through prophesying the arrival of the black fortress and the slayers to devour the planet of Kroll. And then it says, then shall a girl of ancient name become queen. She shall choose a king and together they shall rule the planet and their son shall rule the galaxy. Just that little nugget. If you start to pull that apart, like you said, Matthew, the glaive is extraterrestrial. It, it came with a message, which means that it knew this was going to happen. It arrived on Kroll at some point in time so old that it became myth and legend and people forgot it was real. Like imagine in Lord of the Rings, if the Ring of Sauron was just a symbol or an emblem and nobody thought it was actually a ring. That's how long this weapon has been lost. There's so much history in just that factoid that that ought to be explored at some point. So that's definitely like one of the extra pieces of information that I think makes me enjoy the film more. Um, knowing that, uh, well, we talked about, about Rel the Cyclops too. Knowing that he's an alien from another world, I'm full of questions about Rel. <laughs> like, how did he get here? How did he get to Kroll? Why did he choose Kroll? Where's the rest of his people? They're sad, solitary creatures, but there is a plurality of them. They made a deal with the beast. Why did they make a deal with the beast? Like, how did that come about? Um, and so, you know, so on and so on. You can just, you can topple those dominoes over as you go exploring these things. But the, the thing that I love about this is I don't believe that these are narrative holes. I believe these are narrative hooks whereupon we can hang all new storyline and all new history that uh, that that works in this world. We just don't know what it is yet, right? And to that end, let me ask you just really quick. Is there, we, the three of us, we have discussed so much fan theory around Kroll. Uh, and previously, last year, I divulged the fan theory concerning Yanir, the Widow of the Web, and the prophecy and its history. I'm not going to go over that again. I'm going to ask you guys not to go over that again. Uh, but I would ask you, is there one fan theory that you would like to share with the listeners today that might help them get curious about or enjoy the film today? 
Um, my my theory is that the beast's technology is a combination of magic and tech, and that he especially is able to manipulate um, organic material, biological material. Uh, so uh, in in magic terms, we're talking biomancy, and that that's where mm -hmm. his layers come from uh, is a manipulation of of life of creatures to become his his slayers uh, or his changelings. Or there were a lot of other that was a throwback to a previous segment uh, today. Uh, another place that they missed is we only have. Uh, two creatures of the beast, but Yanir mm -hmm. says that's mm -hmm. one of the beast's many weapons. Uh, we have white slayers and black slayers, uh, and they don't explore what makes them different. Um, but okay. there's uh, supposedly a lot more creatures uh, that the beast could have at his command. Uh, also, uh, and so, and, and very specifically, the slayer's weapons, they're, they're space muskets, uh, sword <laughs> on one side and energy rod or flechette, I like that term that you used, on the other. I believe that because they're biological, um, they, uh, that those energy bolts that they have that you shoot and then there's a regeneration time that it grows yeah. back in the meantime they can use the sword also we've seen that their gauntlets their claws talons or whatever um that they can grow and they can extend so yeah, we see that one time in the film and it's kind of if you don't look carefully you'll miss it but they do have this like wrist talon that's extremely long it's like 12 inches long mm -hmm. and that's how they keep that's how they kill king irig Mm-hmm. So uh, there, I think that a lot of his soldiers are uh, biomantically created uh, with that with that f form of, of magic. From my fan theory, I would think in terms of the glaive itself. That is the very thing that produces this whole story is the fact that the glaive exists. And even in the very front page when you first open the book, um, it says, tumbling through galactic space, the glaive bears this message. And even in the very beginning of the film, the first thing you see is the glaive coming through outer space. And that's where the title appears from is Kroll, <laughs> right behind, you know, the, the dust behind the glaive as it goes past. And also, we have discussed that Yanir has even said, it has been given me to know. And we know that he has, this ancient one, has become some kind of student of the history of the glaive and of the beast and the slayers and things that have happened on the planet Krull that have led them to where they are today. And so my fan theory would be exploring more about the uh, origins of the glaive. We know it came from space to Kroll, and it had a message on it. And the reason Yanir would have to say it has been given me to know is because it would have been written in a language that they wouldn't have known on the planet Kroll. It doesn't matter what kind of a student of history you are. It came from another planet. You don't know that language. And so <laughs> what? where did it come from? And does it simply take its, its mission from planet to planet wherever it sees that a beast and an army of slayers have headed to try to conquer that planet. Does the glaive take it as its mission to go there? I want to see some more exploration into that. That's my fan theory is about, you know, finding the origins of the glaive. I like that. Y you know, you just dropped a little something there uh, throughout our discussion and throughout the movie, they call him the beast, but you just said a beast and Yanir oh, yeah. mentions that uh, I believe in the story when he explains about the Cyclops but in the book it also mentions that the beast is one of a race yeah in fact in the movie th there's never any indication that the beast is not a singularity that the beast is not a single thing right um, even when he's talking about the Cyclops backstory he says um, that the the Cyclops made a deal with the beast. And so we think it's the same beast, but in the CD liner notes in the novelization, which means in the original script, it is made explicitly clear, not ambiguously that there is a race of beasts. And this is just one of them, which I think makes so much more sense and is so much more terrifying in terms of implication for me, the, the fan theory that, 
um, I find highly interesting. I mean, you guys, we, we, we've already hit on some really good ones, but I'm going to go back to the Cyclopean people again, because that question, why would they make a deal with the beast? Once upon a time, Connor Anderson and I started talking about this and we came up with this idea. Now this is totally just our thoughts. This is obviously not like this is head cannon space, right? But we had this thought that the Cyclops are a formidable warrior race. They are a people who are great at fighting and hunting and war. They're extremely powerful. We theorize that the Cyclopes are the only ones who have been able to turn the tables on the beast, whether it's this beast or a different beast, it doesn't matter. The beast came to conquer their world and failed. And the Cyclopes captured the beast. Then to save its own life, using its power, its, its abilities to negotiate and its, uh, its skill for deceit and things like that. It tempted the Cyclopean people and offered them the ability to see the future with the promise that that would make them the unstoppable warrior because they can see the future. They know what their enemy is going to do. The Cyclopean people are tempted by this because not only will they get this gift, but once they have this gift, it makes them stronger still. They can then take this gift and they can use it to defeat the beast once and for all. So for them, this becomes a one-sided deal secretly. But what they don't expect is that the beast taints the gift. And as we know in the, in the movie, the only future they are permitted to see is the time of their own death. And our theory is, um, you know, the things that we know, they know they can see their own death, and that's all that they can see in terms of future seership. Um, if, they, if they fight that destiny, then they will bring upon themselves great pain and suffering, which tells me that when this first happened, there was a number, some untold number of cyclopes who fought against their time of death, trying to change their destiny. And all of them suffered and paid some great price for it, which then taught the people not to fight. And the, pro the most profound aspect of that thought is that the beast ultimately did conquer the Cyclopean people by breaking their will to fight. And now they are a group of sad, solitary creatures who only know when they're going to die, and they've already accepted it. That, to me, is like one of the most poignant fan theories to carry through this story. I love the way you've expressed that, because at the beginning of this episode, we talked about what made Kroll great. And you've talked throughout this about how um, they're not plot holes. They're just waiting. They're story that's waiting to be told. And you just told one possible variation of uh, one part of that door that was cracked open just a little peek into the room and when you realize how much more there is to this story how much richer the world is that is why people should enjoy crawl more there's us there's so much to this a million percent and i want to wrap up this conversation with us just touching briefly on the concept of a remake imagine for a moment that we get to drive that whole remake process, right? And, and, and I say that because we have frequently imagined that we are doing this remake, right? Let me ask you individually your opinion. Do you think a remake should be a movie or should it be a series? Uh, Matai, movie or series? You know, there are so many adaptations that are going to series right now. Um, and they... The one of the things they suffer from is they draw the story out too long. If you've got 90 to 120 minutes to tell a story, you have to stay focused. And it doesn't preclude you from having sequels. So for that reason, I would rather do a small number of highly focused uh, cinematic movies than several TV episodes where the story is is drawn out and by the time you get to the payoff of some story point you've forgotten that it happened six episodes before. Sarah, what do you think? You know, I'm 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 of two minds. I feel the same way. If you put it into a movie and you are limited with time, you get down to work and you get it done. I also fear that doing it in a series would make it not taken as seriously as a movie would because a bigger production, more advertising, hopefully this time. But on the other hand, I'm also thinking there is so much story to be told. There's no way you could do this in a movie unless you intend to make this huge long series like Harry Potter or something. 
if you do it in a series, you have the opportunity to be able to devote entire episodes to one character's backstory so that you understand kind of what's going on with this character in the nowadays um, episodes. And you have the opportunity to explore more depth of particular subjects like the origins of the glaive or why this new young Lyssa has these particular abilities that she does, why so much of this prophecy rests on her shoulders. You know, all these other things that you can really dig deeply into if you are able to do a series. It also allows you to not only explore the past and the present, but also the future. As the characters age and go on, you get to see kind of what happens. Uh, it's almost, it's kind of like, now the rest of the story, you know, that kind of thing. And where you get to see the ongoing tales of what's happening. Okay, now this is their life now. This is what they're doing now. These are their jobs now. So I really am of two minds. I want to do... Uh, to look at this in the in terms of movies and maybe do two or three of them, but then I also want to look into a series because it allows you so much option of being able to look into past, present, and future. You know, I I'm not too far behind you on that one either. Where it's like, I I I see it in my head conceptually in either form, and then it only occurs to me during this very conversation: what if we took a Marvel approach to this. The idea that you can have a series that builds backstory that leads to a film that could stand on its own, but if someone likes the film, they can go watch the series and get more information. Gun to my head, if I had to choose the format, I think, and and it's very tough, but I, I might be leaning toward a series because these beautiful gems of information these fan theories, these exploratory questions, I think can only be explored properly and and with due diligence in a series, you know, six to 10 episodes or whatever it is, um, rather than a film. A film just does not allot enough time if you're going to keep your audience engaged. So I, I think I might be leaning toward that, but I would not be mad at the idea of a movie. All right, we we have we have chatted ad nauseum about this. People at home know that we love Kroll, and they know the reasons why, and they they know the oppor- they know at least some of the opportunities to explore this world and to ask questions, not in a not in a critical and destructive way, but in a constructive way. The ways that you can explore this this world that was made by this movie, and to reiterate what author Mike Haspel said about this last uh, last year on our previous episode about Kroll. If ever there was a movie that deserved a proper and justified remake, it's Kroll. Like this Amen. film, yes. this film deserves a proper, reverent, serious, and valuable remake to bring it back into the pop culture uh, of the 21st century, right? And so to that, I encourage all the real filmmakers out there, all the people who are interested in this, all the amateur filmmakers, all of you who are content creators, who are curious, who are influencers, go watch Kroll with an open mind, with curiosity, with the hope of finding something magical. And you will discover some, you will discover a gem light years beyond your imagination. And with that, we are out of here. Hey, Sarah. What? Why did the Cyclops stop teaching? I don't know. Why did the Cyclops stop teaching? Because he only had one pupil. Uh, Hey, hey, Sarah. That was racist. (laughs) What did one Australian Cyclops say to the other? I don't know. What did one Australian Cyclops say to the other? Good eye, mate. (sighs) Oh, my gosh. Hey, Matt. Oh, (gasps) what? A cyclops walked into a bar. He had no depth perception. Oh! <laughs> oh my gosh. But whether whether you thought that was hilarious or whether you think Kroll is amazing, you're right. And remember to always be epic and don't suck. Remember, the force will be with you. Always. Always.